Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. We do see these arguments taking place now concerning whether faith-based organizations have a free exercise right to perform certain sorts of societal functions with public money and to partner with the government in a range of ways that, frankly, advances their religious views and religious practices over other religious views and practices or people's rights to not have religion imposed on them. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Chris. This is the 11th part of our in-depth conversation with Jennifer C. Pizer, a civil rights attorney at Lambda Legal, about how claims of religious liberty are being weaponized to justify discrimination against LGBTQ people. If you've missed any of the series, you can listen on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Earlier in this series, we discussed the court case of Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, in which a Catholic adoption agency asserted a religious liberty claim to essentially opt out of the city's non-discrimination policy by refusing to certify same-sex couples as foster parents. On June 17, 2021, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled in favor of the adoption agency, but on the narrow grounds that because the city has discretion to grant exceptions to the non-discrimination policy, it can't deny religious exemptions while approving non-religious ones. In a statement, Lambda Legal called the ruling troubling, but noted that the case's limited holding wasn't a sweeping endorsement of religious liberty rights overriding LGBTQ equality. We'll talk about the case in more detail on an upcoming edition of Outcasting. In the most recent part of this series, Jenny and Outcaster Isha talked about other issues at the Supreme Court, including the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg last fall and the rushed confirmation of her replacement, Amy Coney Barrett, just before the election. They discussed the change balance between liberal and conservative justices on the court and some of the different ways those labels can reflect different approaches to interpreting the Constitution. An approach often embraced by more liberal justices is to view the Constitution as a living document, providing a basic framework that has the flexibility to grow as the nation evolves. Conservative justices are often guided by what they believe the framers, or authors of the Constitution, intended more than 200 years ago. This approach is called strict construction, strict interpretation, original intent, or just originalism. Of course, the differences between these two approaches, living document and original intent, have enormous significance for how the court views issues of LGBTQ equality. And that's where we continue the conversation. Jenny, thanks for joining us again on Outcasting. Oh, it's my pleasure to be back with you. How do those concepts of original intent and living document apply in particular to the issues of LGBTQ equality and religious liberty? Well, that's a wonderful question. So part of the answer is the 14th Amendment that was adopted after the Civil War as, as part of the what we call the Reconstruction Amendments. That's an amendment that has a guarantee of equal protection under the laws for everyone, Some people interpret that as just being about racial segregation and race discrimination, but the Supreme Court, at a more liberal time, admittedly, 
has interpreted that constitutional guarantee as a guarantee for everyone, including women and a protection against sex discrimination, and in particular for the first time in a decision given by the court in 1996, that lesbians, gay men, and bisexual people, this is the group that was at issue in the case, are entitled to equal protection of the law as well. And that guarantee has been applied in other contexts as well. So it's a very important guarantee. However, whenever we're talking about equality, there's a legal question about whether the two groups you're talking about are similarly situated. So when we talk about LGBT people, we do have to have the conversation or argument about whether the lesbians, gay men, bisexual people, the transgender people, whichever part of our community or our entire community that we're talking about, are we similarly situated to whatever group has rights that we're being denied? So for example, when we talk about marriage, the argument was whether the cases that protect the freedom to marry as a fundamental individual right should protect same-sex couples similarly. And the conservative or reactionary argument was No, the essence of marriage, the right that we're talking about, is inherently a right of different sex couples. That's what marriage is. And those of us arguing for marriage equality said, well, no, the institution of marriage is about two people entering this family relationship that bring a whole host of rights and responsibilities. And there's nothing inherently heterosexual about that. It's a family law status. And same-sex couples need to have the equal right to participate in that government status. So we were having an argument about what the right is, and then whether the two groups are similarly situated so that same-sex couples can't be denied that individual right. Now, when we talk about religious liberty, that's a great example of how some of the conservative arguments vary from each other. If you study how religious liberty was understood at the founding of our country, it was largely understood as a protection against government preventing you from worshiping according to your traditions. But there was a broad understanding that society was entitled to function, that religious liberty was not a free pass to disregard the laws that are there to allow society to function well, the laws that the phrase might be to protect the general welfare. So sometimes we think of religious liberty as a shield against government discrimination or government interference or government setting up an official state religion and treating people unfavorably if they followed a different faith tradition. More recently, we hear arguments, some of which are new and novel and quite aggressive, that religious liberty should be understood as a greater right, a first freedom, some say it's in the First Amendment, it's the most important, and that it's a right that should really surmount all other legal obligations, essentially to give one a religious pass to not follow the law if one has a religious reason. Now, to the founders, that would have been, as I read the history, a shocking idea. It's really turning that religious freedom from a shield against the government to a sword <laughs> to be used to, if you will, you know, carve your way through the law or to impose your beliefs on other people. That's some of what we're dealing with today, people asserting their religious liberty as a right to do things despite a law that's there to protect other people. So we have some different understandings of 
how that right should be understood. What was it understood to be when the country was founded? How should we understand that today? Another way of putting this is that when the country was founded, there were many people who believed in natural law, the idea that God has created the world and imbued individuals with important basic rights, and that those rights have a religious source, they come from God, and that therefore we should understand our civil legal arrangement as something subject to those natural law rules. That's a very different way of looking at our legal system than many of us have grown up with. Most of us, I think, grew up with the idea that we have a secular legal system and there's enormous religious diversity and the source of law is our social contract with each other. It's the constitution. It's our system of laws. It's not any particular religious tradition or notions of natural law coming from a particular source. So these are very serious disagreements. They're philosophical disagreements, they're religious disagreements, and they're constitutional disagreements, and some of them are playing out before our eyes these days. Now, the newest Supreme Court Justice, Amy Coney Barrett, describes herself as a religious conservative. What might that mean in her approach to issues generally? Well, I think one of the areas that's of great concern to many of us is how she will understand rights of access to reproductive health care and to other health care, whether she sees these rights that have been recognized now, some of them for 50 years or more than 50 years, to not continue a pregnancy, to have access to abortion care, right of access to contraception. There's a range of health rights, and also individual autonomy rights that are now in question. She has written as an academic and spoken and taught seminars, and we see some reflection in some of her jurisprudence of a religious viewpoint on these questions that is very different from what our law has been for, as I said, you know, more than 50 years. So I think it's a real question. During her confirmation hearings, there were many invitations to tell the Senate more about her jurisprudence in this area, more of her philosophy and approach, and she generally refused to answer the questions. So many of us are concerned that her reasoning in the cases may look like her academic scholarship and may be really not resemble at all the jurisprudence that we've had as a country. So we'll we'll have to see. There are other areas too, of course. There are basic areas of equality and civil rights where some of her religious conservative ideas may support the equality of all people, but we don't know. I'll give you an example. Justice Scalia was a religious conservative. He was the lead author of an opinion that said religious rights are very important, but the civil law is to be enforced unless it's targeting a particular religion. That basically, if the rules apply to everyone equally, then we have to follow the rules. Justice Barrett may take a very different approach to that and may elevate the rights of religious objection in a way that could make it very difficult for government to enforce what we think of as religiously neutral rules that apply to everyone the same way. That could make it quite difficult for our civil government to function if individual people with religious objections are entitled to special treatment kind of all over the place. We could end up with a bit of a Swiss cheese situation in terms of whether our whether our civil law can be enforced. That remains to be seen, but it's something that many of us are watching closely. 
What do you think this might mean for her approach to LGBTQ issues and religious liberty, especially when the two are in tension with each other? Well, that is a very excellent question. And it's something that we at Lambda Legal are very concerned about. As Judge Barrett was nominated to the Supreme Court, we did a deep analysis of her jurisprudence and her writings and her speeches and asked the Senate to inquire into some of these areas because she had seemed to express skepticism about who transgender people are, for example. And we do see, in particular from some leading conservative religious figures, an objection to the idea that transgender people, (laughs) they are who they say they are, and that gender is a complicated aspect of who we are, and that sometimes gender transition is an appropriate thing for a person to do. There's a, an enormous body of medicine at this point in science that confirms that this is true. But there's a religious objection in some religious traditions to the idea of a person being able to change the way they express their gender. There is a religious view among some that God gives you your gender and you should accept it and embrace it even if it feels complicated to you. So we have a concern about how Justice Barrett will look at some of these questions. And there are there's certainly a concern about whether she would respect the legal precedent, the constitutional precedent that same-sex couples have the same fundamental right to marry as different-sex couples. Some of her religious views are not consistent with that constitutional principle. So there are quite a few areas where we're concerned. And certainly, there are open questions about whether, for example, faith-based organizations that provide services for the general public should be expected to follow the same non-discrimination rules that other organizations are expected to follow, or whether they should have special rights to, to follow their religious approaches to providing services as opposed to what may be considered professionally appropriate in a field, say, social work or medical services. We don't know what the answers will be to these questions, but they are questions that have been front and center for us when uh, she was first nominated and then when she declined to answer the questions during her hearings and then was confirmed to the court. And some of the questions that she has posed during oral argument, now that she's on the Supreme Court, let's just say, have not exactly put our concerns to rest. So we'll see. It's still early days, but I think there are some very serious questions in front of us. How can the Senate know what they're voting for if nominees refuse to answer questions? Well, I think it's very difficult, and it is a result of this process having become so charged, in part because the conservative right in our country has set out to change the law in some particular areas, and so has set out to push nominees to create a political process that trains lawyers and urges conservatives to seek uh, roles as judges and to make their way up in the federal courts in order to change the rules about abortion access, for example, or the rights of minorities, or voting rights, or a host of other issues that have been contentious in the public sphere for a number of generations now. It is about ideology, and it's also about power. And none of this is a secret. This plays out in front of our eyes. But nominees can say, it is perfectly reasonable to say, I can't tell you how I would 
uh, rule with respect to this or that question because that question might come before me if I'm confirmed to the court. That's considered appropriate, but it's become almost uh, a ridiculous ritual at this point if a nominee won't talk about their approach to questions, won't talk about their jurisprudence, won't really say much of anything, then, of course, the senators don't have much of anything to go on. It means that they are not really able to do their constitutional job of advise and consent if they're deprived of the information. Now, we at Lambda Legal and other groups that work in this area, we do a lot of research. We put together briefing materials. Sometimes we put together letters providing that information. People with different views of the questions, they do as well. So usually there is a fairly full hearing record that's made available. I think the senators actually do get lots of information from different sources, but I think it's very frustrating to them and it does make the process frustrating for the general public as well if the nominee declines to participate in the conversation and So you have scholars and you have advocates bringing information to the senators, but you don't have the nominee really explaining what their views are. And I will say Mitch McConnell has taken a process that has been politically charged, at least with respect to some nominees, for quite some time, and he's made it much more extreme. I mean, what we saw during the Trump years was... Mitch McConnell rushing nominees through at a pace that was really unprecedented. Just in the four years of the Trump administration, there were roughly 40% of the federal bench is now Trump nominees, at least in some of the circuits. It varies among the different circuits. But the point being that the number of nominees that were confirmed to the federal bench during the four years of the Trump administration is about the same as the number that the Obama administration confirmed in eight years. So it really was at a pace and with a rather obvious political goal. And that does give the public impression that the courts are just a, another political branch. And that, that is really not good for our judicial system or for public respect to the courts. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Speaking with Outcaster Isha is our guest, Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. We've obviously talked at Outcasting about religious liberty and LGBTQ equality, and one day we talked about President John F. Kennedy, who was the first Catholic president of the United States. Leading up to the election, there was concern that as president, he might enact policies in line with Catholic teachings rather than the U.S. Constitution and possibly erode the wall between church and state. Not long before the election, he gave a speech addressing this concern. Let's listen to an excerpt. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote. 
where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference, and where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source, where no religious body seeks to impose its will, directly or indirectly, upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials. That was candidate John F. Kennedy speaking about the separation between church and state about two months before his election as president in 1960. This recording was provided by the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum. So Kennedy was making it clear that he believed in the separation of church and state, particularly as it related to his own presidency. These days, it seems that the religious beliefs of public officials are front and center, and that we expect as a matter of course that their decisions, whether political or judicial, will be influenced by their religious beliefs. That seems like a very different approach from what President Kennedy said. How did we get from there to where we are today? Well, I think that what we see today is that civic leaders and elected officials of one political party tend to lead and talk a lot about their religious beliefs, often those beliefs being evangelical Christian or some conservative version of Christian religious beliefs. And the other major political party doesn't (laughs) and talks more about religious pluralism. President Biden identifies very openly and warmly about how important his Catholic faith is to him And yet he works to advance certain individual rights that are not consistent with conservative Catholic teachings. So I think the reality is is more complicated. I think one of the reasons that things have changed so much from President Kennedy's time is that we've seen the emergence of a religious conservative political movement that resists social change in the name of religion. At least some of how it appears to me is that religion is provided sometimes as an explanation for why political change is being resisted, why changes to provide equal rights and freedom to women or to LGBT people or to Muslims or to immigrants or to other groups of people who have been disempowered, that conservative religious beliefs are offered as a reason for resisting those changes and for sharing who has power and who has opportunity, uh, who has political access and so forth. So I think one of the things we think about quite a lot as we seek to understand what our religious rights are, what they aren't or what they shouldn't be, is to look at who's advancing a religious argument for what? And is it really consistent with a religious position or religious rights as they were understood some generations ago? Or actually, does it seem to be, I won't say convenient, I think many of these beliefs are sincerely held, definitely sincerely held, but they do align with the idea that certain types of change should be resisted. And then we need to unpack that a bit and talk about 
how do we protect religious liberty in a way that doesn't impose burdens and costs on other people? I do think that that is one of the primary commitments. If we want to have a society that functions well, that does have room for everybody, then to use the common cliche, the religious freedom of one person needs to stop when it would harm someone else. We talk sometimes about the the freedom to swing your arm stops at the tip of my nose. That's an important way of talking about how the religious rights of anyone have to live in harmony with the equality rights of other people. And some of that has seemed to be out of balance in recent years. It's not really a new question exactly, but we need to think about who's arguing about religious liberty And does it seem to be happening in a manner that's consistent with resistance to expansion of rights, expansion of freedom, and access to power of people who have not had freedom, rights, and access to power? Earlier in this series, you talked about the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment and about the separation between church and state and how it's being eroded. We can see how the Establishment Clause provides protection to the people to not have religion imposed on them. But with religion being increasingly weaponized to justify discrimination against LGBTQ people, that protection seems to be disappearing. Is President Kennedy's approach obsolete today? Well, it's not obsolete, but we do need to rejuvenate it. We do need to engage the general public in understanding the way our constitutional jurisprudence has evolved with the Supreme Court recognizing free exercise rights in a more and more robust manner, freedom to assert one's religion, sometimes to the detriment of others, and less and less robust understanding and interpretation and enforcement of the Establishment Clause. It's a real problem. So I would say it's not that President Kennedy's approach is obsolete so much as it really is up to us as a society as a whole to insist that that principle be respected and enforced by the courts. That is not an an easy thing to do. But for example, we do see these arguments taking place now frequently concerning whether faith-based organizations have a free exercise right to perform certain sorts of societal functions with public money. Not that many years ago, there would have been a strong Establishment Clause argument that those organizations might be free to operate as they wish in a range of ways, but not to have government funds and to partner with the government in a range of ways that, frankly, advances their religious views and religious practices over other religious views and practices or people's rights to not have religion imposed on them. So these arguments are very alive today, but I must say the free exercise clause is tending to carry the day a lot more often than the establishment clause. They're supposed to be equal and in balance with each other, and they're not really in balance. They haven't been in balance in recent years, and we need to find a way to get them back in balance. We're out of time, so let's break for now. We'll continue the conversation next time. Thanks, Jenny. You're very welcome. That's it for this 11th part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. If you've missed any part of this series, it's available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting Team, 
including youth participants, Isha, Rose, Jada, Justin, Lil, Charlotte, Tim, Sasha, and me, Chris. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. You can also find Outcasting on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and other major podcast sites. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. All right, go get a piece of paper. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. Thanks, and thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.